0: Welcome to The Jess Larson Show on innovation and leadership. Uh, this episode, I'm really excited to have Shane Stanley. Uh, he's a filmmaker, music video maker, commercial maker, author, teacher, and, uh, and somebody who's had like the real gritty from start to success story that we love to hear on the show. Uh, Shane, thanks for making time for this. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, first, tell people the name of the book, the
1: premise, and when it came out. The name of the book is What You Don't Learn in Film School. Uh, an independent, I guess it's a, a guide to independent filmmaking is the subtitle. Uh, the way it came about was really interesting. I, you know, have been consulting mentoring and kind of teaching a lot of schools and filmmakers, just kind of my approach, which is more what not to do. I don't tell people what to do. I, I try to say, hey, look, these are the pitfalls and valleys and the bumps and bruises that I experienced. So let me just give you a, a heads up on where you don't want to go. And after spending about an hour and a half with somebody on the phone, I didn't know. I hung up the phone after, you know, he just blew a million and a half bucks on a film that nobody wanted to look at. And my wife was standing in the door at the the office at the house. I said, what? And she said, you've been on the phone with this person you don't even know. You do this like every day. Do you realize how much you're not getting done yourself just giving all this advice away? And I said, oh, well, you know, it's something that's in my heart. I like, you know, teach and to help people and and she said well that's really nice you should write a book and she stormed out you know and then about 2 weeks later i got asked to start writing a blog for a company uh based in uh port california that had a satellite office in uh austin and they asked me to do these 5 500 word or less blogs uh and it, they kind of covered every every industry imaginable and i started writing for them once a month and I guess they did very well and they called me and said, would you be interested in writing a book? We'd really like to kind of get your thoughts in, in a 200-page book. So after the wife telling me what she thought I should do and these guys asking me to do it, it kind of came about. And um, it was interesting. I wrote the book in just under three weeks. Um, and I, I don't say that in a boastful way. It's just this is stuff that I've been telling people and live firsthand for so long that it just poured out of me. And uh, so I wrote it and I got a great editor on it. Uh, Marissa Foglia uh, made my words make sense. She she kept my voice and did a brilliant job. And uh, Emily Allen was the layout artist on it. And they put it together and it's been doing pretty well. There's a whole bunch of places we could go. We
0: talk about winning Emmys, all these different things. Um, can you, let's start with, um, can you tell people kind of the saga? Tell us the Gridiron Gang story. The Gridiron Gang story, which one? Um, well, uh, just kind of the, the back and forth and ended up with the
1: rock and Well, yeah. I mean the the backstory is, you know, my my family, we had done about a half a dozen documentaries based on at-risk youth, uh, in the you know, starting in eighty nine all the way through the early nineties. And we had a lot of success with them. And my my mom had seen an article in the LA Times about the camp that we had filmed a few of our of our projects at was starting a football team within the confines of the jail to go out and play the straight schools. And she came to my dad and I, and was like, oh my God, this is your next show. You've got to do this. you got to do this. And my father was kind of burned out. He was like, you know, we've done a lot of stories on these kids. It's it's a, it's a great idea, but no, we're going to pass on. And um, we let it sit for a couple of months. And then one day my dad woke up and said, we've got to do it. So he called, he called probation, who he is a an unbelievable relationship with and said, yeah, you know, we'd like to come up and document the the season with your football program. And they laughed and they said, get in line. Everybody in Hollywood wants the rights. We're taking the highest bid. And we're just, you know, independent documentary filmmakers at the time. You know, we were scraping a few bucks together. And, you know, it was me and my dad with a camera and also holding the sound mic, and, you know, it was, it was pretty ragtag the way we did things, but they turned out okay. And uh, so we got turned down. And then about two weeks later, we got a call from the head of probation. He said, well, the check didn't clear from the company that we uh, agreed to work with. You've got 48 hours before the first practice. So we grabbed a couple of cameras and a couple of friends and went up and shot, you know, Sean Porter and and the team as they started their journey. And um, that was an unbelievable experience. I mean, of everything we've done, that was so memorable because, you know, you're watching these hardcore kids that are locked up for every crime imaginable murder armed robbery you know grand theft and uh opposing gang members that that we watched become a team and have to work together and so that's been fast forward nobody wanted to air the show took about a year and a half to get on the air maybe two and uh finally got on the air and it, it won an emmy for best you know it was the best film of the television special of the year and then the next day after it aired every studio in Hollywood called wanting it to remake the rights. So that was back in 93. Uh, We signed with Sony and the film went through a a lot of back and forth or turnaround as they call it in our industry. And um, lo and behold, you know, in 2005, we were able to partner with Neil Moritz, who's, you know, an amazing producer and a wonderful, wonderful human being. And uh, Neil was just as excited about it as we were. And um, we, we went from there and, Uh, the rest was history. You know, you've got like this kind of like
0: stop, start, stop, start, you know, like kind of all great projects. Um, And then at what point did
1: Dwayne Johnson get involved? Really funny story is I spoke to Neil, um, I think on a Monday and we set a, a meeting for a Tuesday. And he said, do me a favor, come to my office with about 15 to 20 names of bankable stars that he said, "Casting's always been the problem with the studios. You know, they'd had Bruce Willis at one point, Dustin Hoffman, John Candy, Charlie Sheen, Mel Gibson, Sean Penn, Boris Whitaker. They had been through so many different attached actors, or probably a lot of the actors didn't know they were attached, but the studio wanted. And I was at home, uh, uh, working, trying to to kind of connect dots to see who the best actors would be for this. You know, in the studio's mind, it's you got to put on a different different lens for that." And I'm working, and my, my wife, then girlfriend, comes in. Same one who told me to write the book, and uh, she's got tears in her eyes, and she says, "You have to come see this." And I said, "I'm busy. I'm working. You know, I'm I'm casting Gridiron Gang." And she said, "Put it down and get in here. You need to see this. I found your star." I walk into the bedroom, and she's got A and E's Biography of the Rock playing, and I, no disrespect to Dwayne, you know, I love him, but you know, at that time he was more of a, known as a wrestler. And I, th- when I walked in, there he was jumping in a Speedo and then cocking his eyebrow. And I said, yeah, I don't think so. And she, she said, listen to me. She said, this guy has been through hell and back. He's been arrested 11 times before his 18th birthday. He, he was drafted in the NFL. He blew out his knee, went up and played in Canada, failed there, built himself from nothing. And he's a hell of an actor. Please consider him. So I went back into my office, thought about it. I looked at my list and I just said, God, she's right. This guy is the right guy. So I went to Neil's office. My dad and I went into Neil's office the next day and uh, hadn't seen Neil in quite a few years. And he said, Okay, great. So where's your list? And I said, I got your name. And he said, No, I need a list. I said, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And Neil paused for a second and he yelled to his assistant, Nikki, down the hall. And he said, Nikki, when's my meeting with The Rock? And Nikki poked her head in and said, You're having dinner with him tomorrow. And he said, I'm having dinner with him tomorrow. You better get copy of the documentary and get the original script uh your dad and jeff mcguire wrote 20 years ago let's get that in front of him he had dinner with Dwayne. he called me the next day and said Dwayne wants to meet you guys up at the jail and experience you know the actual facility and we met him like a week later and uh that was it the rest was history
0: you know for people who don't know the reception to the to the uh hollywood version there i mean the obviously the the doc won the emmys but can you talk about like what that what that did for people who don't remember what the documentary did? No, no, the the movie and the rock and just kind of like the reception and and kind oh, of how people for, loved it.
1: Forgive me, you know, it did really well. It was it was number one at the box office for a couple of weeks and uh, kind of stayed in the top five, ten for about a month and a half. It did well, and you know what was really neat was you had this this wonderful actor, you know, Dwayne who. I think it was I think it was a project that really made a lot of people realize this guy had true chops to be a great actor. It wasn't just, you know, everybody knows he kind of got past the, the baton from Schwarzenegger when he did the rundown. That was kind of the inside joke when Arnold walked by him at the nightclub and said, have fun. And he went on and did, you know, the rundown. He went on and did uh, Walking Tall and Scorpion King and all these other great films. And then for him to do something like this, it, it just, it really resonated with him. But it was great to see the public reception um the film did well we're really proud of it and uh, i know neil neil moritz is real proud of it too
0: well i kind of wanted to start at this end of the industry but what i was really excited to talk about is the start and like um i i loved your book so when i was in art school uh, i was getting ready to do concept illustrations for the movie and my mentor who's now been my business partner for 21 years said Hey, you realize if you got rich enough you could just make movies about whatever you want, right, Jess? And that's how you got me to quit art school. I quit university, become an entrepreneur. And as your mentor it's your mentor has said I'm on the twenty year plan. Okay. Uh or maybe I'm on the thirty year plan. and I'm twenty one years in. Okay. So um so I've just been reading screenwriting books and watching WGA, you know, um, Writers Guild and Producers Guild videos on YouTube for years, and you know, like I'm very fascinated with the industry. It's where we'll be eventually, kind of a thing. But um, I, I love your book. You know, we just we had Jay uh, Jay Sekar on the show uh, a little while back, and and uh, talking about getting Super Troopers made, and and you know, things where nobody was handing him the you know the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Like they started cheap, and he talked about making his first movie. At a price that he knew was going to be profitable, and I feel like, you know, him, uh, the Duplass brothers—I don't know if you know their book, *The Brothers*. Yeah. Um, but uh, but in your book, are just, I just—I feel like you guys are giving people the straight truth of like, hey, there's the like the fairy tale version of making it Hollywood, and then there's the reliable version. Go scrape your stuff together and make a good movie at a price that has a high probability of being profitable. And guess what? You'll probably get to make a second. Just my- I'm, I'm totally oversimplifying it, but I want you to I, jump in here and correct me.
1: Well, you're not, you know, I mean, we, you know, I think, I think back to the days, you know, where dad and I were doing these really low budget, high, high concept, high quality docs. And, you know, I remember the first time he got funding for Desperate Passage, which Michael Landon ended up being in, um, we had a million dollar budget and he had tried to raise that money for about five years. And finally, in 1986 or 87, a very, very wealthy friend of the family who really believed in my dad's vision finally got tired of hearing him grovel and handed him an envelope with a check in it and said, just shut up and go make your movie. I remember he opened the envelope and he said, you want to see what a million bucks looks like? And he opened up the envelope and a check for 25 grand. And it was kind of like, well, that's $25,000. You can get a nice car for that. And he said, hang on, I think he's got us on a payment plan. Let me go back. And he went back to his front door and knocked on the, you know, because he had us over at the house. And had knocked on the door went inside for a minute he came back out with his tail between his legs and he said he's given us 25 grand he said figure it out and I will tell you we made the same film we would have made probably with a million dollars obviously didn't get paid anything but it's it's okay I think when you have a lot less resources you put a lot more into it you don't have the mindset of throwing money at and the reason I bring up that story is because when I was coming up and decided I wanted to tell narrative stories and not documentaries I always went in with the mindset of, let's think about how to get it done. You know, most of the filmmakers that I consult with, a lot of the people that I have the, the privilege of speaking to, they've all got these five, 10, $20 million budgets for their first movie. And they they wonder why after 10, 15 years it's getting made. And so I went in with the mindset of, okay, just tell me how much I can get or what the parameters are that I can work in and I'll make it work. And that's that's what we've done. I I just... You know, I work with, with some wonderful investors who believe in what we do. They they just, you know, we treat their money like it's our own. And we go in and we say, this is what we've got to do this story. Let's do the story the best we can and make it fun and hopefully turn a profit and get to do another one. And that's really what we do. Um, it's not rocket surgery by any stretch. It's, it's, you know, how do you make a product that's going to go out globally? and entertain people in a short period of time, and hopefully have some legs and be something people want to see again and again. Sometimes we're successful with that. Sometimes we're not. That's, that's the nature of the beast. Um, But, you know, it's, it's interesting since COVID especially how the costs have been cut in making projects. And, you know, we get a lot of calls because we were doing it long before COVID and we made two films during COVID and, It's interesting to see models of a lot of the outputs and a lot of the big name outputs now are are actually calling and saying, hey, our costs, our budgets have been cut substantially since COVID. We're coming to you because you know how to do this. What's the plan? How do you do this? So it's, you know, it's just how to produce a product that you can just still get the best people you can, get the actors that you can get and turn out something that you can be proud of at the end of the day. And I'd rather, you know, as I say in my book, I'd rather be making a movie or two a year than talking about making one for five or six years. And, you know, a lot of people look down at me because I do lower budget films, but most of those people are people that aren't doing anything anyway. So I think about it. And, but I mean, I love your stories too of like, just cause
0: you're, just cause you had family in the industry, you know, that wasn't, you weren't getting handed a meal ticket that way either. And, and the, like harder. you started by volunteering and working on all these sets for free I did. In your early 20s and and scraping by. it. I mean, I love that principle. I thought it was hilarious, the negative comments you got on those Film Courage. By the way, if anybody hasn't seen all of Shane's videos on Film Courage, that's like a film school right there. Go watch the YouTube channel Film Courage. He gives you like the real straight truth instead of the fluffy version. But you. Uh, you had all these people whining about your advice of like, go work for free get enough experience that you actually become valuable. Yeah, And I think some people misconstrued it as like work all the time for free every day, all day. But I think mostly it was whining. <laughs> I was oh, like, yeah. I don't want to do anything for free. And yet I've seen this principle in so many industries, like my one business partner, Lindsay Hadley, she's been on the show. Her, her clients now are like Hugh Jackman's wife, Kevin Bacon. She helps billionaires and celebrities with their charities and stuff, right? And she for sure got into almost everything she's done by starting out, making friends, doing people favors for free, helping out without being asked. And build skills, build rolodex, build skills, build rolodex to the point that she gets clients like that, right? And so I've just seen that principle over and over in like the competitive industries, and I just like how you kind of like
1: you give it straight, no, no sugarcoating. Well, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, your dad was in the industry; you must have been handed it." Well, you know, my father was a successful, successful documentary filmmaker, and what I wanted to do was complete opposite, and he when I decided I wanted to to be a filmmaker he just said look here's my Rolodex make some calls good luck to you and everybody I call wasn't interested a lot of people are nervous to hire somebody's kid because I've hired somebody's kid and believe me it's a train wreck <laughs> no firsthand but I, I'd i say to them you know like I can name some some people that were really early on and accepting me people like Phil Hearn who's a very accomplished Emmy award-winning cinematographer I called Phil who shot with us in the past. I said, Phil, I I, I just need to learn. I, I don't expect anything. I don't want any favors. I just want to be given a chance to learn. I'll work for free. I'll bring my own lunch. Tell me what I got to do. And you know what? Sometimes they'd say, okay, we're doing a shoot next week with so-and-so. Uh, don't have to bring your own lunch. We are crewed up, but if you want to be there in shadow or swing, which means, you know, float from department to department, learn. Uh come on in. I did that for a long time um I still held other jobs I still you know would would work different different jobs in different industries to pay my my bills I I didn't you know pour myself out other than just making myself available because I look I know everybody in this business is you're blessed if you were making a living in this industry and I also know the amount of people that are trying to get in is overwhelming and to get a shot, sometimes you just have to say, look, let me prove myself. You know, I, I've never said to anybody, go out and work for six months straight for the same person for free. It's more about getting set experience so you can meet good people, you can meet actors, you can meet department heads and you can meet producers and directors. And hopefully they like you enough to say, Hey, we're doing a project in three months, make sure we get your number, we want to call you, we'll hire you. And that's all that was, you know, and um you know, I think we live in a time now where People are, are uh, they, their, their horns go up when they hear work for free. And it's more about interning and, and just showing people what you got so they can call you. The price is right. Y- you, wanna, you want an easy
0: way into something that's hard to get into? Bring something to the table. If you're not bringing much of a skill set, that's a great way into the, into the door. As I, um, as
1: I tell people, not to cut you off, as I tell people, you know invest in yourself. Um, you don't have to go to film school. You don't have to go to college. You don't have to buy a bunch of materials to try to get in and make yourself a commodity in this industry. You know, when we when we do a film, we work with anywhere between five and a dozen interns at a time with the local colleges. You know, work real closely with Biola, work with, you know, BYU, we we'll work with the college of the desert. And, you know, we get these five to 12 interns that come through and they, they work with us a couple days a week and they circulate. And it's so wonderful because when the, productions done we always kind of get together afterward as you know the producers say you know who do we not want to make a movie with um and who do we not want to make a movie without and it's always really cool when there's an intern or two that we say god we don't want to make a movie without this person and we could call them and say we so enjoyed you and you were you know your work ethic was second to none you've anticipated the needs of your superiors you floated you never watched anybody else work you always took it upon yourself to help. Those are the kind of qualities that I know producers are looking for. If they're not going to hire you because they don't need you, make yourself available to show them your stuff. We're, I think we're going to do a mini series on the show about, uh,
0: about the finance of independent film and television. Um, thinking about that space, what's your first advice to people when it
1: comes to financing an independent movie? As far as getting financing, Uh, It's a question I'm asked many times a day, it seems. How do I get money? How do I get money? Uh, all of the the backers that I've worked with over the last 20 years, with the exception of one or two, have been deep-seated relationships. People have to realize that rich people are, they have people around them that tell them don't invest in movies, don't invest in nightclubs, don't invest in, you know, restaurants and records and, you know, bands. So... The only way to overcome that is by trust in relationships and showing people who you are as a human being. It's not about, you know, it's obviously about a resume. It's about them seeing what it is you do and how it, how it you know, from beginning to end. Most of the people that have backed us over the years have said in our early relationship, don't ever ask me to finance a movie. I'll never do it. Oh, well, that's, that's fine. And we become friends and, you know, 10, 15, 20 years unfold. Uh, sometimes it's working together on their projects a their own line of business that they need help with and they see how you work. And I think if you're in it for a quick, you know, I'm going to get this movie funded, I got to find a rich guy or girl and do this, I think it's going to be pretty hard. Um, I feel that you're always being tested as, as I tell people, look, you know, when people that you're gaining trust and relationships with, they invite you to a cocktail party or a New Year's Eve party, don't think you're not being tested think about how you conduct yourself. Don't drink too much. Don't act like a buffoon. You know, these are the kind of things you have to remind people because they're going to want to see how you kind of interact in a group, how you behave, what your, what your, you know, weaknesses are. And I, I've just found that, you know, the best advice that I, I, I could give to anybody is, is be genuine, be sincere and be willing to wait a long time. It's, it's very rare that, that it comes like that. And, uh, People don't like hearing that, but and i and I also really recommend that people get their their pitches down this whole pitch deck, and you know, as I talk about in the book, everybody comes at them with these names and you know their pitch deck that they're never gonna get these comparables that they're never going to acquire or achieve, and there's so many little films out there that have very little to make. That turned a really respectable profit with names that are respectable. They're not household names, but they're respectable names. Again, it's about building a portfolio. You know, you're not going to go out and get Tom Cruise and and you know Ben Affleck in your first film. Go get some respectable, recognizable faces. Make it for as little as you can. Make the best product you can, and show people what you got. And you just you keep building and you build. It's 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 like building a skyscraper. You don't start with the the penthouse. You start at the lobby or actually start underground at the garage and you build your way up. A lot of people don't like to hear that, but that's the reality of it.
0: Let's talk about some practical aspects of that. When you're doing your mental calculus on how much you can spend and reliably, you know, reliably look your investors in the face and say, this has a really, you know, like, I really believe we can make this money back and more. What's that equation look like in your
1: mind? You know, that equation is something that I I don't think any two films are the same. I mean, you have so many different things. You have the the culture climate, which changes, it seems, almost every 10 minutes now. You know, it used to be every six months we could kind of gauge what's popular and how long it's going to last, right? But in this day and age with information and just bombarding us in the mindset, and people have to remember that because your investors are bombarded with news and mindset and trends and left turns and pivots all the time as much as we are. So I think you have to think like-minded, but you know you also have the different genres. Is what is an action going to film going to do? What's a romance film going to do? What is a musical going to do? And you have to really look at that on a broad scale. As I try to remind everybody, it seems that. So many young filmmakers are more interested in having that red carpet event that they could share on Instagram. It's really not what it's about. You know, as I always think, work local, think global. You know, what can you do in your own backyard that's going to appeal to the 54 territories, which translates to 172 countries? You know, uh, we forget coming up that there's a whole world out there that's hungry for content. And, you know, the old Shakespeare saying, I believe it was, is to thy own self be true. And you have to look at what you have to work with if you're working with a certain investor that that may only want to put in a half a million or three hundred thousand dollars to a project. You have to think, okay, what is the best the best names we can get that have the most recognizable you know or most recognizable globally that okay, this actor may not be at the top of everybody's list here today in America, but globally they're in heavy syndication in sixty five countries right now, and those sixty five countries pay really well, so you that's how we think. It's not about getting the household names today. Uh, it's about who can we attract that have global appeal and longevity.
0: You know, my, my friend Brad Johnson, who I want to introduce you to, when, they, when they're when they making movies, it, it's been interesting for him to tell me about like, you know, I, I won't name names here, but he'll, he'll name names that were like, you know, they were on TV when and in more movies when I was a teenager in the 90s or something. Like, oh, we can get so-and-so for X amount a day, and that will that will get us this type of this type of international reception and right. it, it's surprising like very well-known very recognizable faces on a day rate i think for people outside the industry would be surprised like oh wow that's that you know you hear about these huge multi-million dollar contracts you have no idea that like a person that famous because they're not currently really hot in u.s social media or something right people don't realize like just how affordable
1: it can get that you know and I talk about that in the book I I hate to say it I I love actors without them we don't get to do what we do but the end of the day it's like browsing for used cars you know the the value of that talent is what you have to spend and what are you willing to spend and what is their global value it's it's you know I I learned a long time ago that some actors that I knew as friends coming up that were, I, I, I never like to use the word has been, that's so disrespectful, but they had, their, they had their run, we'll say, here in North America where they were on a hot series or they were you know, second or third billing and all these blockbusters, but they're just, they've cooled off over the years. And then you find out globally they're, they're stars, to, they're still in syndication, they're on TV every day, they get fan mail from all over the world and when we make a film, you know, it's, it's nice to appease to North America. But again, I go back to the 54 territories that this, this world has gifted us. And that's what we focus on more.
0: Like, let's talk about these couple of movies you made during COVID. You know, you're thinking action, there's some comedy, there's some, you know, as you're doing this math. what like, let's pick one of them and let's talk about your thought process as you went through from ideation to actually making it.
1: Well, we could talk about Double Threat. That was a really interesting, uh really interesting kind of chain of events. We had been locked down for, you know, at this point six months, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, six, seven months. And I was I was, you know, like everybody, we were just home. There's nothing to do. And and I just was starting to, you know, my writer CJ Wally and I had talked about a lot of ideas. We took a lot of Zoom meetings with executives that were interested in working with us, but nothing was getting done until COVID was over. And I, I just had enough. I heard that they were going to allow filming again with certain, you know, protocols and you know restrictions with COVID and and you know social distancing, but more importantly, the size of the crew. And when I heard that and a light went off, I said, Well, size of the crew. I've made movies with four people. That shouldn't be hard. You know, how much are they how many are they gonna give us? Well, you can't have more than like twelve to fifteen people on a set. Oh jeez, that's that's fine. So I called CJ in London and said, you know, dude, it's September. I've been I've been home since March fourteenth, fifteenth, whatever. I'm done. I'm gonna I'm gonna just get some cameras and go shoot something. Let's write. So we I he and I had kicked this idea of double thread around and uh, he had a, a script in four days from, from, this is the story we're going to tell to, okay, let me go to work. Danielle C. Ryan, we had, we had met uh, indirectly. We were going to work together before the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, it scrapped everything. She was chomping at the bit to get to work. So we involved Danny, her manager at the time, CJ and myself, we all did a zoom call. And I said, you know, we can have the script ready in, in less than a week. I can get the cameras. I can get the locations. Let's just find three more actors and go make a movie. What are we doing? And we literally, it was the fastest we had ever put anything into pre-production. We got a great crew of about 10 or 12. We got four great actors, you know, Donald Liberi from Yellowstone. We got Matthew Lawrence, you know, everything. This is Doubtfire Boy Meets World. We got Danny and we got uh Kevin Joy and, uh, we we split their storylines up, so we were only shooting two actors at a time, and we just we just did it. And what's really funny is if you've seen the film, the action scenes, you know, the stunts that Danny is able to do uh, are unbelievable, whether it's on a horse or a fight scene or, you know, her own driving. But the unions came in and the Department of Health came in when we were shooting our car scenes, and forced us to do this green screen work. Well, I don't I don't like to do green screen. I think it's a bunch of BS. So they forced us to do green screen. They sat there with us as we shot. And we kind of embraced it and said, why don't we make the green screen look really kind of Robert Rodriguez goofy? And we'll we'll do everything else really organic, because the safest thing we did in the in the film was drive. You know, driving driving is easy, but they wouldn't allow cameras, myself and ACs in the car with the actors. So we had to shoot it stationary via green screen, which was never the plan. We were gonna shoot it organically and let them drive. Do it.
0: And can you tell people the premise of the movie if they haven't seen the trailers or haven't seen the show? Sure.
1: Yeah. It it's 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 about a girl with um associative dis identity disorder. And it, you know, when everything's calm and normal, she's the beautiful girl next door, she's a little ditzy and uh and then when The you-know-what hits the fan, she turns into a lethal assassin. And the idea came about, my father and I were driving to Mexico some years ago, and we stopped at a grocery gas station south of the border, probably 500 miles, and uh, went in to pay for gas and get some sunflower seeds and some drinks. And there was this very attractive woman behind the counter, and uh, she didn't belong, I'll tell you that. And after we left, we started driving. I pulled over and I started writing. And my dad looked at me and he said, you're writing about an idea because of that girl. And I said, there's something there. I'm telling you, there's something there. So that's basically what it's about. It's about Matthew Lawrence's character who who lost his brother and is on a pil- pilgrimage driving across country to scatter his late brother's asses in different places that that he wanted to be you know, remembered and scattered. And he stops for gas and some sundries and while he's at this little liquor store, this girl's working at this hit happens where two guys come in to try to take her out, and she she ends up taking taking them out, and uh, they end up running basically from the mob together across country to you know get him to scatter the ashes and you know to get her to safety, and of course they fall in love, and live happily ever after, right?
0: Now, and and do I remember this one did really well on Amazon? Is this is that this one or is that a different he, one?
1: Yeah. I don't know what happened you know uh new york times said it's they called it the top five action movie to stream uh during the summer which was wonderful i don't know where that came from but they they chose it which was great and that was back in uh june july and then in october for some reason the film caught on and uh lived in the top 10 for a month and uh you know made it to the top four and was surrounded by films in the Hundred two hundred million dollar range. I mean, it was unbelievable. I I don't know where it came from. Nobody has been able to figure it out. And and do you share what you made it for or not? Really, we made it for lunch. We made that film for lunch. I will tell you. You know, it's funny. We made the film. Um, we we uh, it was it was actually financed by somebody who who felt bad that a lot of us were stuck at home and just wanted to see us go out and do something. And what was really funny is when they had opened up restrictions to film we had all these great locations we had unbelievable locations that were really hungry to get some business so we were finding these fifty thousand dollar a day locations for like a thousand dollars and had them all lined up and then i don't know if you remember two days before thanksgiving the governor came out and said i'm going to shut down filming again batman and jurassic park were the only two other films really going and they had covid problems so the governor came out we were all huddled around the radio at the, the beach, we were shooting. It was our last day before Thanksgiving break. And they said, we're going to be shutting down filming. And our phones started ringing off the hook. It was all the locations we had booked. And they all said, you're not coming. Forget it. You're not coming. We're sh- we're not going to allow you. So I made a call to a dear friend, Mike Ryan, who's a very accomplished stuntman. He's got a uh, Castaic film ranch. And he had just acquired it and I called Mike and I said we just lost nine locations. I got 12 more days of filming. Can I just come shoot the movie on the side of your hill? Cuz he hadn't even built it yet. It was just it was just a mountain and some roads. And we took the we took the Thanksgiving break for three or four days and we all met in Castaic and finished the film up there for I think another 10 or 12 days just uh side of his hill and just redid it as we went. You know, what's interesting
0: is you you make that sound so easy, but um you know, just talking to Jay and reading the Duplass Brother books and stuff like this. Like, it is a skill set to know how to make something that is going to entertain with a completely different frame of mind of what it's going to cost, how it's going to get shot, what's going to get shot, but still get a story that's going to keep people watching till the end and then telling their friends to watch it, right? Um, We went into that,
1: so let's just get out of the house. It wasn't like we were trying to reinvent the wheel. It was like, let's just get out and do something that it'll be fun we just thought hey what about an an action a female action exploitation film just something cheesy with all the stupid lines putting a hair in a ponytail all la pam anderson and barbed wire you know don't call me babe boom you know all the stupid stuff that you know there was there wasn't like we were trying to cure cancer with it it was just something to do to entertain ourselves and hopefully somebody would shit that's all we wanted to do is get out of the house and it's it's funny sometimes the things that you put the least effort into and believe me the effort with the production and everything was was not compromised and obviously in front of the camera with what the stunts and what what our actors did but i'm talking about the the mindset of what we're going to do i mean how many people spend years trying to think about how do we be the most successful film and you know they do all the the think tanks and they do all the focus groups and you know studios do that often and okay, this movie's going to get greenlit because it should make $200 million. And you know, we didn't have that time. You know, we wrote CJ wrote a script in four days and we slammed it into pre-production and went shot at, you know, friends of ours. Yeah. How
0: long was that gap between
1: that script writing before filming? um, I usually like three months from you have a go to let's start because I like to just really flesh out locations and actors and crew um we had it was september i want to say september 25th we we had a green light in a script and we started shooting in october i think it was like three weeks i mean we didn't put much time at all into it it was just you know and and so in a case like that are you writing producing
0: and directing what what are all the hats you're wearing
1: well you know cj wally wrote that he wrote our, our last few films he wrote break even and he wrote night train which comes out january 13th um you know, I, I get very involved in coming up with the idea. Um, I I I like having written more than I like writing. Writing takes a lot of time. I find there are people a lot better at it than I am. Um, but, you know, the producing side, directing, I do edit most all of my, my films. Um, I, I worked with a great editor, Frank Reynolds, who cut In the Bedroom, which was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Uh, Frank and I met through Adam Kane, who's a, a wonderful director and friend in television. And, uh, you know... Everybody was not working, so Adam connected Frank and I and said, "You guys should meet and Frank came in and cut double threat with me, which was really it was really cool working with him on that, so yeah, just to deliver you know
0: yeah, can you talk about that for a minute? You know, directors get so much credit, and sometimes it seems like people maybe haven't thought through just like how thoroughly the movie happens in the editing room, not you know like obviously you get the raw materials out there with the camera. But sure. at least what I what I feel like I've learned, and feel free to correct me, but it seems like it seems like sometimes editing doesn't get the the credit it deserves for what that product ends up being.
1: You know that's that's a great point. Um, I always tell writers, especially there are three scripts: the one you write, the one that's filmed, and the one that's released. You know, uh, the writer's gift to production is paper, the, the page. Here, this is my gift, and then the director working with production and then ultimately the actors you know actors often weigh in and say you know i don't feel comfortable about this or why am i doing this or you know and you go through that process and you know by being involved in the whole process i I found that it you know the old clint eastwood way we kind of get a script and that's what we shoot you know we just like to streamline and simplify it's like if the script resonates and it's something we're excited about let's go make it and let the chips fall where they may but you know the edit bay so many things happen, you know we have to deliver a film for a lot of our distributors that you know has to be under ninety five minutes, so you get in the edit Bay and you slug it all together, and you know you could be up over two hours and you guys, well, it's gonna be thirty minutes taken for this, or you know something happens when you're shooting, you lose a location, an actor gets sick with covid uh anything can happen where you're thinking on the fly and you're you're repurposing scenes and you know but when you get in the edit bay, it's when you you really have to decide, you know, is this scene being the film forward? If you, you collect old DVDs and Blu-rays and you always like to watch the deleted scenes, um, often your filmmakers will say, you know, we love this, but it had to go. And here's why. And, and often it's, wh- how is this advancing the film? You know, it may read well in a script, but when you watch it all glued together, does this scene really move it forward?
0: You know, it reminds me of the Stephen King advice for writing novels where he says, kill your darlings. You know, these, these things that you're like, which is like perfect for him to call it, that, right? But like these things that like you love that line or you love this, whatever. But when you're deep down honest with yourself, it's not what the
1: story needs. Double Threat, it's a great example. We had an opening scene in Double Threat. Uh, where before the film starts, Matthew Lawrence is driving down a country road, a desert road, and he's reading through, he's, you know, a forensic accountant, and he's working as he's driving his brother's ashes, you know, across the desert. And he's he's going through all these files and going through everything, and all of a sudden, a bee gets in the car. And he starts, you know, the bee, you know, you're driving with a bee, you know, what do you do? You start swatting, you start swatting, and then sure as, sure as heck, you know, he's he starts losing it, and all the paper goes out the window. It's actually a very funny scene. He ends up pulling over to go collect all these files and then some crazy uh, you know, desert drifter with thirteen kids in the car pulls up who's drunk and, you know, tries to help him. It was played by Andrea Logan, by the way. And it was such a great scene and it cut so well. And it was a great opening scene with great energy. And Frank, when Frank Reynolds cut the film, we we had to cut out about three minutes of the film. We were just we had to. And he said, I'm telling you where what where we start is in the liquor store pardon me i got a cat who's hungry uh he he said we we got to start in the liquor store I go, what are you talking about he goes that opening scene it's hysterical it's funny does nothing he said it does nothing other than it's a great scene by itself it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with the movie really let's get these two together immediately and before i could respond jess it was like oh, shoot, I bet he's right. And I literally went, you know, because we worked together. He was in New York. We worked together online. I went to the tunnel and just cut the first two and a half, two, two minutes and 53 seconds out and just started right in the store and went, I don't even need to see the right. He's right. And that was a scene I was really excited about. We spent a lot of time getting that paper to fly out of the car. That took a half a day, and we ended up getting a leaf blower and shoving three scripts and having a guy duck down behind Matthew you know hit the leaf blower and knock all the papers out so we had a great shot of the papers like you know wind tunneling in the car and going out the window it was such a great moment but it just it was killing a darling it's exactly what it was there was there was a lot of that and and there's a lot of that in every film it's very rare a film will time out exactly as it needs to so thinking about that principle somebody who's
0: listening today who who wants to edit a movie what how do you simplify that what What's something that they should maybe repeat to themselves in their head as they're trying to make those hard choices?
1: Just remember, it's not what you cut, it's what you don't cut. Explain that. Well, it's, uh, I think it's, it's important to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, a lot of filmmakers, uh, yes, kill your darling, but also look at the domino effect of what you're doing. I think too many people will say, well, this isn't my favorite scene. I want to get rid of it you have to look at the ripple effect. I've been I've been guilty of that. You know, we've done films where we have to get rid of scenes or we have time or moments and you just you're not spending enough time really thinking about the domino effect where you're going to lose your audience or they they may have been really engaged with this character and you're taking out part of what that character needs to get to the other side and you're you're looking at other things. And I think that you know, there are nuances, subtleties and moments a lot of times new filmmakers especially we'll go in and chop up a scene to make it tighter 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 it's been the thing for the last 25 30 years make it tight make it quick and i think when when audiences are trying to relate to certain characters or moments and those those subtleties those nuances of the of what our actors give us are thrown out without any thought they're just discarded like they don't matter and i think sometimes those are the things it's those little beats and subtleties that are throughout a scene that an actor can give you, or a camera movement can give you, as it settles, that that you got to think twice about that. It's not just about tightening air. You got to think about the whole picture. And and I, I find that most new editors will go in and just chop the dead air, and that's sometimes the worst thing you.
0: Think. I, I want to go back to the. This actually makes me think about the pitch. And you know, we've all sat through mega long-winded pitches, right? That you're where you're like talking people out of it because it's too long, right? Um, when you think about Okay, you've got the relationship. You know, this is, this is, this is the kind of meeting that could, could, that could realistically could or could not turn into money. You know, it's, it's not just somebody being nice and humoring you. Like, this is a legitimate opportunity. When you think about what to put in that pitch and what not to put in that pitch, what's your first meeting like
1: with an investor? You, you know, Google's a wonderful thing. Most people that are in a financial position to back what we do, are you can do your research on it. I think it's really important to research. Like before you and I meet, we research each other. That's what we do now. And I think the most important thing is to try to gauge what a financier's mindset is, whether it be politically, religiously, uh, socially, what kind of philanthropic things they're into. Because you know, I've seen I you know I've seen people go into meetings pitching something that is horrific to some. And not take the time to research their investor or potential investor and realize that that horrific thing has affected their life in a negative way. So why would they get behind it? Um, I think I think research is important. I always say the paper weight. The first two investor meetings I ever had, Jess, were I walked into a very very wealthy man's office who you know took three months to get the meeting and finally got in. I think it was canceled once and rescheduled. So I think it was like five month wait. I get in the meeting and he's got these big couches and a desk wall to wall and I talk about it in the book wall to wall he's just got paperwork and it's stacked about three feet high and his desk is like you know was paperwork and I, I crack open my briefcase he says what do you got for me kid I crack open my briefcase and I got scripts I got budgets I got pitches I got you know headshots of actors he goes whoa whoa stop he goes I don't he's like look around dude I don't want your paper he goes just talk to me talk to me and and I tell you that because I think in this day and age a lot of People are having trouble communicating. And what people, again, it goes back to the trust factor. Eye contact is everything. Uh, Being able to sell somebody verbally is so important. You back it up on paper. But I think people want to be educated on what we do. They want to understand. They need to be able to ask questions. I think going back to the most important thing I've ever learned in a meeting uh, with, with the most successful Relationship I've ever had with a backer was he asked me a question and I said I don't know. I said but I'll find out for you. And I remember he sat back, his lawyer was in a room, and he looked over to his lawyer and he said, "Yeah, hey, it's the first time I've had anybody ever say that in the meeting." And I was kind of nervous. What do you mean? He said, "Well, I appreciate the fact you're not going to BS your way around them." But what that did is allowed two things. It showed him that I was not afraid to say I don't know because we don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. It also gave me a great excuse to have to call him the next day when I got the answer so the next day I called his office the secretary answered I said I I you know she got me through he called me back he said what can I do for you I said you asked a question yesterday in a meeting I didn't have the answer for it he said oh I said I got the answer for you and I told him and he said you know I really appreciate that and we we ended up talking for about 10-15 minutes about nothing to do with film and it was about our time together his family's is getting ready to do something he said do me a favor he said, I know I didn't want a script in a room. I'm going on a fishing trip with my family. I don't fish. I'm going to be sitting in the sun. Send me send me two copies of the script. I'll try to take a look at. And he called me back when he got back from his uh, from his fishing trip. And he said, uh, I didn't read your script. I didn't read your script. Uh, I don't know how to read scripts. I realized opening it, I was confused. I don't know how to do that. So he seemed like a nice guy, you know. Asking for a king's ransom. This could be fun. Why don't don't we put it together? And that's how it happened, you know. And 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 so how?
0: Yeah. How much did he put in? What was that?
1: God, it was probably 175 grand. Okay. Probably 175 thousand bucks. But you know, to somebody who was trying to do their own movies, that was that was 20 million. You know, you can do 175 grand.
0: Yeah. Jay Chandrasekhar, his his first movie is 160.
1: You you know, and he's like, we just
0: made sure. We made sure that we did things so it would be profitable.
1: That's, right? that's it. And you know what? If he had given me a million bucks, I would have given him the same movie. And he was happy. He saw a rough cut of the film, dried his eyes, and said, I'm so proud of you. What do you want to do next? Had a green light on the next one when he saw the assembly. And we just went from there. We just we worked together for many, many years. And it comes from transparency. It comes from honesty. The, the biggest thing, Jess, is is filmmakers feel like they've got to tap dance and sell and, and juggle chainsaws in a room. And that's not what it's about. It's about, you know, it's about telling somebody what it is you want to do, telling them what you need to do it, and then shutting up and listening. Don't be afraid to listen. You don't have to fill the dead air. I found that a lot of yeses come with just being quiet. You know, sometimes I've sat in rooms with with investors where they'll listen to the pitch and they will literally sit at their desk with their eyes closed for two or three minutes. And if you think about how long that really is, it's an eternity where you wonder, did they fall asleep? They narcolepsy. You know, are they dead? And then and then they kind of snap out of it and say, okay. And what they're doing is they're processing. They're just processing, trying to gather the, in, you know, absorb the information you've given them and figure out how it fits in. And the one thing that's really important, filmmakers, they so have to remember these these investors have heard it all before. As I said before, they're they pay people to protect them and their money. They've heard it all before, and they know that they hold the key to unlocking the door to see your dreams come true. And if you look desperate, if you look hungry, you're going to starve. You want them to be a part of something that's exciting, that's building, that has potential to be something great. Watch Jerry Maguire and listen to Jerry sell Renee Selwiger on why she should come work for him. That's how you pitch an investor without the goldfish. You know, it's it's about passion, it's about sincerity, and it's about a plan.
0: That's all it is. I love that line about how many yeses can come after a silence. Maybe one other thought, you know, before we got started here, you were talking about, um, you know, meeting a couple of the brothers from Angel Studios and going out to see where The Chosen was filmed. And for people who don't know, like, for being a non-studio thing, that <laughs> that has been insanely successful. Sure. Just it's, it's incredible. I wish I had real stats, but uh, it's something like, I remember hearing one stat of like, it was doing five times the viewership of like a primetime TV show. And anyways. Um no, you look it, at those it, guys. You're not,
1: off. you're not far off because I've heard this from outside entities that are trying to get those numbers that I've worked but, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um
0: But you you look at guys like that raise I think they raised thirteen million in equity crowdfunding to start season one or something like that. Something. And you know, the world is changing where now there's there are some other opportunities and there are some, you know, that stuff is not illegal, <laughs> you know, for the first time in 100 years since the 1920s, you know, stuff like this. Um, when, if someone was looking at some of those alternative routes like equity crowdfunding, what kind of advice would you have for people in you know, independent television, independent film?
1: Man, that is a great question because I've never done that. You know, crowdfunding became big about eight or nine years ago. And and it seemed that that was everybody's go-to. And I I know there was a couple of real successful ones that were made. I'm sure Kickstarter helped fund for the publicity. Um, I know I'm not saying Kickstarter, but, you know, things were kickstarted by companies that did crowdfunding to kind of say, hey, look what yeah. we can do um, because they make a lot of money if you try to get stuff funded. I, I just think that, you know, anything that you could do to raise money uh, to try to accomplish what your goals are to to create content is is smart I mean there 's so many ways to do it now, you know I mean we have the abilities with and I hate to say it with your phone and your laptop, but there 's no excuse with your phone and your laptop why you can 't be creating content there 's no excuse anymore we don 't have to raise a hundred thousand dollars for film stock. you know I, I I worked in the old days of sixteen and thirty five and Several hundred thousand dollars of our budgets went to film stock. That's the equation. So, you know, I think anytime somebody could come up with an idea and an alternative way to get finance, I mean, look, I forget the name of the folk, but look at the guys that did Facing the Giants, you know, that football film about 15, 20 years ago. They did that for like 10 grand. It was past the collection, played at church. We're going to do it. And a couple of pastors went and made this great little movie about a local football. Are you familiar with the film? No. Check it out. It was the guys that ended up doing Fireproof, and Courage, and all that. Oh. I mean, they went on to do like massively successful films, but it started with. I want to. Say, I think it was a hundred grand. I think the church raised a hundred grand for them to go make this movie, and that's just forward thinking. That's smart. You know, if they hadn't have gotten the church behind it and the the local town involved, they'd probably still be talking about making the movie. And these guys have gone on to make almost a dozen movies since then. You know, it's just about being creative and coming up with ways that you can get it done. And God forbid you have a hit on your hands, the, the phone will ring. People will come find you. You don't have to knock <laughs> on doors anymore. Maybe my final
0: question as we wind down here. Um, I want to hear your thoughts about the evolution of, of promoting your movie these days, you know, with all the social media options and the just the way the world has shifted, how you think about um
1: you know, advertising and promoting the movie. I'm going to let you down. I am the worst when it comes to that. I, If you go to my social media platform, I rarely take a picture on a set. I don't think that way. I, I am a firm believer of oversaturating social media with your behind-the-scenes stuff nine months to a year before your movie comes out is a waste of time. Um, that's just me. You're not Jim Carrey. You're not, you know, Steve Martin and Martin Short on a set, you know, Murders in the Building kind of stuff people want to see if you're an indie rat and you're working with a few people you know hey you want to take a picture of you and a big actor you're working with that day you're excited about cool but i think again it goes back to what we talked about earlier is that, that the information superhighway is so overloaded and, and here's my point in getting to all of that is you you start bragging up a movie you're on set making that nobody really cares about let's call it like it is and then you don't even have a distribution deal so the movie you limp through post you get it done you get it picked up it goes to sales and then maybe a year later it's coming out people people aren't going to remember and then now you've got it it's the boy who cried wolf it's drum up everybody's excitement again hey our movie's coming out it's streaming or it's here or it's there that's great but i think you could have more punch hiring a publicist and somebody for maybe a, a three to five week run It seems like whenever we – it's like Night Train. You know, Night Train comes out in theaters January 13th. It goes to all the platforms on the 17th. They're not going to start pushing this thing until after the New Year. Why? Because look at what we just had. We just had all these elections. We've got holidays, New Year, football. you got all this crazy stuff going on in the world. People are just ramrodded with information, and you don't – the studio budget like Black Adam did to be on your, you know, on your screen every five seconds or every time there's a commercial break or during the football game to see your movie. So you have to be smart. I think if you find some really good, you know, independent publicists that can capture the vision of what you're trying to do, help with social media and, and really place your things at the right, right time. So people, this is what I've learned to to answer your question of an hour and a half ago is, People are going to see it. They want to be able to go there. Yeah. They want to be able to reserve a ticket, put it in their queue. Oh, you know what? Let's go see this tomorrow night. Way in advance stuff about your little independent film, it's very rare that that gets the track. It should. It's just things are different now. So I really recommend people be more strategic in how they, they market their film. That's just.
0: Yeah. So l- let's talk about that for a second then. When you think about interviewing a publicist or somebody who's, who's trying to decide, is this the right one? What kind of advice
1: would you have for publicist selection? I think publicist selection is simple. um you know a lot of people like publicists that that get thirteen thousand likes on an Instagram post and they hire them and they wonder why their stuff got three likes um, That's not how you find a good publicist. What you want to do is you want to call independent film companies that are doing well. They're out there you know i I always push to people subscribe that hundred bucks or hundred and nine bucks a year to amazon uh to forgive me to uh. IMDB Pro. Look at the independent companies that are doing well with their films that you've heard about that have actors in them. Call them up and say, who's your publicist? Who, who do you work with? And, you know, I've worked with some that are just absolutely waste of time. I've actually had to hire publicists on top of publicists that were given to us through film companies or distributors that are just so bad in its life. Um, I've learned through that experience to research, find out who's got the juice to get you TV placement. You know, we've worked with people that have gotten us on Sam Rubin, KTLA, gotten us some great traction and, you know, some of the the stuff that people read, I don't even know what they're called anymore. Um, but you know, for, for me, it's, it's about associating yourselves with people that are successful at doing what you want to do. You know, and I I think that's something that you got to do from beginning to end with your film and your career. You know, I saw Steven Spielberg do an interview with Barbara Walters 100 years ago after, you know, Indiana Jones or E.T. She said, what makes you so great? He said, I'm not, I surround myself with people that know more than I do. And that's what you got to be able to do is surround yourself with people that know what they're doing and and make sure they have a game plan. It's not just, oh, we're going to blast everything here. You have an actor in your film this actor is interesting in this kind of outlet. And the people, these publicists should come to you with ideas and a game plan and a strategy. You know, it's like going into a game, you know, the coaches come up with a strategy, and your publicists and your distributors need to do that. Okay, I lied. I've got one more question. You so I'm, I'm a yours all day. Come on now. This is, this is good. I,
0: I feel like you have done a great job at not being so precious with your movies. I think there's so many uh, folks, again, you know, I went to art school. There's so many people who over-identify with their art, and like this is an extension of me instead of this is this thing I made, and maybe it's awesome, maybe it's just good. It seems like you, it, it seems like you've been able to separate your self-worth
1: from any given project. Can you talk absolutely. about absolutely? I'll tell you two quick stories if you have the time. I was I was doing a film, uh, for a studio in 1998. I wrote it. I was the lead producer on it. It was my first big job. It was a a $12 million film. And we were going to shoot it in LA. And five days after we hired everybody and set up studios at CBS Radford, the boss walked in and said, fire everybody. You're going to Phoenix. I was like, why? And he said, we're scrapping. There's a 30% cash rebate in Phoenix. Fire everybody. You're going to Phoenix. We literally packed our stuff went to Phoenix, and I went there for four months to make this movie. I found out later I was one of five writers. I was one of 20 producers. Martin Sheen was in this film, and God God love him. You know, I used to run Charlie's Production Company back in the day, and Martin and I were having dinner one night, and he told the greatest story on this set. And he said, you know, when I was making Apocalypse Now, he said, you know, I had a heart attack. I almost died. And he said, when I was being wheeled in, to emergency my wife jan looked down at me and said geez martin it's only a movie and he said i never forgot that he never forgot that and i'm sitting here listening like okay martin she's telling me a cool story about apocalypse now and i remember going back to my my hotel that night and thinking oh my god he's not wrong she's not wrong it's only a movie and what i mean of course apocalypse now becomes one of the greatest things that we've ever seen right i i still haven't seen the whole thing i'll admit but it's 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 a staple in our history Fast forward 20 years, 15 years, I had a film that was financed, developed, you know, I had some massive stars attached. This thing was packaged by one of the big agencies. This was uh, a film that was very near and dear to me that I I put a lot of time in the art piece that was going to identify me. It was going to define me, if you will. And then the 07 crash hit. And my investor called and said, have you seen the the back page? Of the, have you seen page three of the business section? I looked. He had just lost $471 million in a day. And he goes, I'm not giving you anything for your movie. Good luck, kid. I lost the film. It fell apart. And somebody who was involved in packaging the film took it upon themselves to give the script to somebody else. And the film got made without me, with a new title and a new opening scene and new character names. And this is something that was big on film courage. Everybody wants to know what it was and who did it. Um, the fact of the matter was that the film was made by the people that I brought in without me and repackaged and rebranded and went on to do. Okay. I mean, it, it was runner up at Sundance, I think. And it it was gutting. It, it, it killed me because I, I, this, this was taken from me and given to somebody who didn't have this script by somebody I, you know, involved and long story longer, I, uh, I woke up out of my slumber one day and I said, it was only a script. I mean, what if the movie sucked? Like, what if it didn't go as planned? Maybe I dodged a bullet. You know, I just at that moment, Jess, I woke up and I said, I got to shake this off and get out of my depression. It's only a script. It's only a movie. Life rolls on. Let's go. You know, nobody cares that I'm heartbroken and got ripped off. Who cares? And I just I just started realizing this is a business of fast food and filet. Of course we'd all love to have that one groundbreaking film like chariots of fire, you know, on golden pond or the big fat Greek wedding that defines us as a filmmaker at 51 years old. I learned very young that this is a cutthroat business and it's about content. I was fortunate enough to have a meeting with Michael Eisner about 15 years ago and he's known for the saying, and he said it when we were in our meeting, content is king, crack out content. It's a business. And I, I tried to, Find that balance of of loving what I do, making films I want to watch, working with people I love, and trying to make sure I make a movie or two a year, and that's it. I don't get emotionally attached. They're all, you know, Ron Howard said it best: "They're all going to find a way to break your heart anyway." You know, so I subscribe to
0: that. I think that doesn't just apply to movies, businesses, all sorts of things, right? Does
1: it? Does it does, and you know, I wish we had time and resources to really flesh out those greats and to make a movie great. But I know a lot of great filmmakers that never got to make movies because they spent too much time trying to make something great that they never got to make. So you never know. And for me, it's, it's a business. I, I love making movies and I love working with my film family. And for me, if I could find a way to do that a couple times a year, then I I feel whole, you know, I, I'm not chasing anything. I don't care about statues or ratings or, any of that. I was fortunate to, to be involved with a lot of success at a young age. So for me, this is all this is all a gift. It's a borrowed time professionally. This has been great. Thanks for making so much time. Thanks for having me. Anytime this is an honor to be on your show. Thank you. So if people want to follow your stuff, if they
0: want to watch your movie trailers, if they want to buy the book, where are the best places to send people?
1: You know, if they wanna they want to check out the book, it's what you don't learn in film They can get it directly there. Uh, they could go obviously to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target sells it now. It's it's pretty much everywhere. They could buy it in uh, paperback, Kindle, and audio. It was actually named in the uh, top 20 best audio books of all time in the industry, which I I took a lot of pride in. Um, That's great. I don't know how that have CNN and Forbes did an article on the best audio books of the film industry, and we're up there with with the Lucases and the the Tarantino's. I don't know how. Uh, so they could get that there. They can go to my website shane dot net. Um, you know, I'm. I'm you, know, you can find me on Instagram. I think it's official shane stanley. Um, you know, I don't. I don't do a lot of social media. As I've said, uh, I try to put something up once in a while. But you know, I'm pretty easy to find. That's great. Well, thanks again for doing this. That well, was an honor. Thank you so much, Jess. Okay. Bye, everyone.